We're going to go to the Word now. We're going to go to the book of John. And if you have your phone or electronic device or copy the scriptures in print, I would encourage you to follow along. We're going to look at John chapter 20, and we're going to focus in on verses 24 to 29. Imagine for a moment that one of the ushers has just locked the doors so that nobody from the rest of the building can get in here right now. The doors are locked. Nobody can get in. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears right in the middle. Wouldn't that be great? That would be wonderful. We could hear from him instead of from me this morning. You could see him. You could... Hug him, shake his hand, touch him. And that's the type of thing that was going on for the disciples in this passage that we're looking at this morning. That's what happened. They were there in the evening on Resurrection Sunday, and the disciples were gathered there, it says, for fear of the Jews, and Jesus appeared in their midst. So that's where we're going to pick it up. I'm going to read our verses, and I'd like to ask you to stand, please. I'm going to read John 20, and I'm going to read verses 24 to 29. But Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, And my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We ask that you would help us in these moments together to understand it today. Father, you promised to give your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to convict us where we need it, to encourage us where we need it, to walk alongside us through whatever we're going through today. And Lord, as we consider these verses about Thomas in particular, would you show us how we need to respond to you? I pray that we would respond in faith, that you would give us grace to believe this morning. To believe in the risen Christ for the first time or to believe again, to trust you. Father, I ask for your help this morning, that your Holy Spirit would empower me to teach your word accurately and clearly, that your word would come through and do its work in our lives And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have a little bit of an outline for you. You don't need to write this down necessarily. You can just read it along with me. It'll be on the screen. But in these six verses or so, 
we have five things going on. First off, Thomas was absent. He wasn't there. We'll talk about that. That's verse 24. Verse 25, Thomas comes back, and they tell him, Jesus was here. And he says, I don't believe you. He didn't believe. But then we read that a week later, Jesus appeared to Thomas in verses 26 to 27. And in verse 28, we finally see Thomas believed. In that final verse of this section, Jesus gives a blessing to those who believe without seeing. I'm going to back up just slightly to give us a running start. This is what Deb read for us earlier in our scripture, starting at verse 19. Then the same day at evening, that would be the first day, the day that Jesus rose, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The first thing I want you to notice about that paragraph is that Jesus came. Some of them weren't sure what was going on. As we read earlier in the chapter, Peter and John have gone to the tomb, and it says John believed that Jesus must have risen. He must be alive somewhere, but we don't know where. But he came. And it says that he came even though the door was shut. The idea is that it was locked, it was bolted. And somehow, he appeared. And it says he stood in the midst. And if you've read the Gospels before, you might recognize that phrase, in the midst, because isn't that what Jesus had promised? The promise is in Matthew 18. He said, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Guess what? He is in the midst of us today. Not physically that we can see him, but he's here. His Holy Spirit is present with us. We are here gathered in his name this morning to praise him. To praise our risen Savior. And he's here. And what did he say to them? I have it highlighted on my page. Peace is what he said twice. And that was a common greeting of that time. They, they used to say shalom, and this is the Greek equivalent of that. So he's saying peace to you peace to you, but perhaps this had greater meaning to them now. Because he had provided the way for peace. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He had been crucified for them. He had paid the penalty for their sin, for our sin. He had died on a cross. And it says here that by faith, we now have peace with God because of what he's done. So when he said peace to you, yes, it was a greeting. It might be like, hello, how are you, that we say. But it had so much deeper meaning by that point because they had newfound peace. They had a newfound relationship with God through Jesus. And they come to verse 24. 
So that was review. That was to set the stage. There it says, now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So Thomas, and elsewhere you'll read Didymus, or your translation may have, <coughs> may have Didymus. It's just another name of the same thing, and it means twin. Who is his twin? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. For some reason, it was important to say that he was Thomas and that his name means twin. So he was called the twin, but we don't know who his twin was. And it says that he was not with them. Where was he? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know where he was. In fact, the Bible doesn't even condemn him for not being there. But it seems that he came back soon after Jesus left because of the time frame mentioned in a moment, the eight days later. And the other disciples told him repeatedly, we have seen the Lord. That's the verb tenses. They kept telling him. And imagine, he's coming back and there are 10 of them that are the named disciples. They're there and they're all maybe telling him at once, we've seen the Lord. The Lord was here. He was here. He said, peace. He showed us his hand, his sides. At least I'm guessing that maybe they mentioned that because of what comes next. Continuing in verse 25, so he said to them, unless I see his hands, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. The way I think of it, Thomas must have been somewhat of a scientist because he wanted to test whatever knowledge there was by what he could see, what he could touch, what he could feel, what he could hear and smell, for that matter. He wanted it to test it by his senses. He wasn't just going to take their word for it. He wanted proof. He wanted evidence. What did he mean by the print of the nails and putting his hand into his side? What's he talking about? Three times in this section that we're reading today and that we read earlier in the scripture reading, it mentions Jesus' hand and his side. And if, if you look at one of the parallel accounts in Luke 24, we have indications that Jesus was nailed to the cross. John mentions only his hands. Luke mentions his feet as well, and so does Psalm 22. At that time cross being crucified was a form of execution that's how jesus died he was on a cross and we surprisingly we don't have a lot of detail written here we just know that he was crucified the gospels say he was taken out and he was crucified so at that time sometimes the romans would use ropes or, or something to tie a man to the cross other times they would use spikes or nails and this indicates to us that he was nailed and if we take those passages together, we believe he was nailed in his hand or wrists and in his feet. And what does it mean about his side? Well, if you backed up a chapter, you would read in John 19.34 that a soldier pierced Jesus' side with a spear. Why did he do that? Well, it was getting close to the Passover. That was a holy day to the Jews. And they didn't want anyone to be left on the cross so they wanted the legs to be broken. Well, why did that matter? 
the legs were broken because that's how someone who was being crucified lifted himself up to breathe. And once those legs were broken, you couldn't do that anymore, and eventually your arms couldn't support your weight, and you would suffocate. That's really how people died normally who were crucified. So they broke the legs of the thief who was crucified on his right and on his left, and they came to Jesus, and the centurion saw that he was already dead. But just to make sure, he took a spear, and he pushed it up into Jesus' side. And it says that outflowed blood and water, so fluid indicating that Jesus was already dead. So he had a mark in his side. He had marks in his feet and in his hands. What does that mean to us? Well, it seems that even though Jesus had risen from the dead, that he still had marks from his wounds. What do those wounds signify to us? Isaiah 53 says that by his stripes we are healed. You mean somebody was hurt and I'm healed by that? Spiritually speaking, yes. He went through physical torture to take the penalty for my sin and for your sin. That's what the cross was all about. And Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes we are healed. Romans 5, or sorry, Revelation 5. We get to the last book of our New Testament. And over and over, Jesus is called the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. Well, Revelation 5, it says, he appears as a lamb as though it had been slain. So there in heaven, the ascended Christ, the one we will worship forever, still has, it seems, these marks in his body. People have pointed out these are the only man-made things that appear in heaven. These are the scars, the wounds in his hand, in his side. So it seems to me that for all eternity, we're going to be able to look at Jesus and see evidence of his love for us and what it cost him to pay the penalty for our sin. But Thomas, of course, had not yet seen the risen Christ, and he hadn't seen his hands or his side. So none of what the disciples, the other disciples were saying made any sense to him, and he was not going to believe what they said. So here's this statement, and if you mark in your Bible, you may want to underline these words, I will not believe. Please understand, the issue here is not inability. He's not saying, I cannot believe. This was an intentional decision on his part. He had made a choice. He will not believe. And this is where he earned his reputation and the nickname, Doubting Thomas. If you've ever heard that phrase, even if you didn't know it came from the Bible, this is the guy, and this is how he got that nickname. Really, when it comes down to it, he's not doubting. It's not really a good nickname for him. He is disbelieving. He is choosing not to believe that Jesus is alive, that he has risen again, and that he has appeared to his buddies. It's surprising to me that he refused to believe them because they had spent time together for about three years following Christ. He knew them well. They knew him well. And we understand Judas was the one who betrayed Christ. He's already gone out and hung himself. He's not with them. But then there are the 11. It's gone from 12 to 11 for right now. And 10 of them were there, and all 10 of them, Old Testament law, to establish something. It took two or three witnesses, right? 
and he has 10, and they're all agreeing. And somehow he's thinking, it must be something you ate, it's something, this is a group hallucination. All of the modern arguments we hear may have been going through his mind. There's just no way. I can't believe it. I will not believe it. That's what he's saying. It's also a little bit ironic to me, because what was Jesus' plan to spread the news of the risen Christ? Who was going to do that? These guys. And how are they going to do it? They're going to bear witness of what they've seen, that we've seen the risen Christ. And how's it going so far? <laughs> they have 10 of them, and they're all saying, we've seen him, he's here, he's alive, he rose from the dead, the tomb is empty. And one of the 11 is saying, no way. I will not believe that. I refuse to believe that. So we're off to a little bit of a bumpy start, I think. But let's, let's be clear, let's be honest, let's be accurate with what the scriptures tell us. The fact is, none of the disciples believed immediately. None of them. You say, can you prove that? Yes. Let's look at a couple verses. Mark 16. This is describing Mary Magdalene. We read about her earlier in this chapter in John. It says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, read the last four words with me. They did not believe. Okay, let's do another one. Luke 24, there were other women who came to the tomb in addition to Mary Magdalene. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Here's another one. It's also in Luke 24. There are two disciples, and we don't know their names, but they were on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus came, and he walked alongside them for a little while, and this is addressed to them. Verse 25 says, Then he, that's Jesus, said to them, these two disciples, unnamed, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He's talking to them. He's saying, guys, you're not getting it. You're being slow to believe. One more. And by the way, there are two or three others we could have done, but I'm going to give you one more. Back to Mark 16. Same description on, of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. That was Jesus talking to them that I told you from Luke. This is these two disciples come back. Verse 12, after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, and they went and told it to the rest. That would be the 10. Help me out here. But they did not believe them either. Did these guys believe? Not at first. Not readily. Not easily. So let, let's not kid ourselves and think, well, if I had been there, I would have understood it. I would have believed right away. I would have caught on to this. I would have taken him at his word. I would have been listening. I would have been paying attention. No, probably you wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would have been like these guys, slow to believe, refusing to believe. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you came. Maybe somebody invited you. And you're sitting here thinking, okay, when is this going to be over? This is fine for all of you to believe this. I'm glad you believe this. It makes you happy, but I do not believe this. I'm not buying this. I don't want any part of this. You don't have to nod at me right now. But if that, that may be how somebody's feeling. And that's okay. Because know that you're in good company. 
these are the 12, 11 of the 12, that Jesus had chosen and had walked with him for three years and had heard him say on at least three occasions that we know of, I am going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise again the third day. And they had heard that. And now it's happened, and he started to appear to people, and he's appeared to some of them, no, I don't believe it. It's okay. You're in good company. Even Jesus' disciples didn't believe at first that he had risen. But thankfully, this story isn't over. Because there's another conversation between Thomas and Jesus. Verse 26. And after eight days, that's another way of saying a week later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. So this is sounding familiar, isn't it? Sounds very much the same as the previous section. But the difference is what? Thomas is there. Once again, Jesus has a greeting of peace to all of them. But now he has a specific word to Thomas. And as he turns to Thomas, do you think everybody else is turning to Thomas? you think they're looking at each other? What's he going to say? Oh, he's going to lower the boom. What's he going to say to him? Does he even know what Thomas said and how he's been refusing to believe all week? Verse 27, Then Jesus said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So Jesus didn't scold Thomas for his unbelief, but he did tell him to stop. Jesus can handle our doubts and our questions. Please don't think, I can't talk to anybody about this, or I can't go to church because I have these questions, and I have these doubts, and I have these fears. No. Jesus welcomes you to bring those. Now, there's an attitude that would be better, and that would be the attitude of, I'm bringing my doubts, my fears to Jesus, and I'm going to trust what he says about them. That would be the right attitude. There are some people who want to be skeptical, and they just want to argue. But if you are genuinely seeking to know the truth, and you come to Jesus, who we know is the way, the truth, and the life, he's not bothered by your questions. He's not put off by them. He wasn't put off by Thomas and his disbelief. But he said, don't be disbelieving, but believe. He corrected him. By now, Thomas could see Jesus. He was standing in front of him. He could hear him speaking. And truthfully, that's all he needed. Because we know from elsewhere in the Bible, Romans 10 tells us faith comes by hearing. That's another word for belief. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? By the word of God. Who's standing in front of him? The one who is the word of God, who is speaking, and he's hearing the words of the word of God. So faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. That's really all he needed. But Jesus offered him even more. He said, reach your finger here. Reach your hand here. Jesus is showing great patience, great compassion, love, kindness to his disciple. By giving him the request for evidence that he had demanded. Did Jesus have to do that? No. Jesus is also exposing that he had heard. He wasn't there. He had left. But he heard. He knew. 
So what's the command? Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Stop doubting. Stop your disbelief. And this is the moment of truth for him. Is Thomas going to continue to refuse to believe Jesus, that he's risen from the dead, even though now he's standing in front of him? Is he going to accept the truth? And here, in verse 28, we have a very dramatic and instantaneous transformation from disbelief into belief. And you know what I think it looked like? It says, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. He is acknowledging him as his master. He's acknowledging him as deity. This is a big, bold statement. It is obvious that if he's talking to him, he believes now this is the risen Christ. He's resurrected. That seems pretty obvious to me. He knows he's alive. You don't normally talk to dead people. He's standing there in front of him. And he says, my Lord and my God. So he doesn't just believe the resurrection. Obviously, he does believe that now. But he believes that Jesus is God. John MacArthur said this is the greatest confession a person can make. Others have called this the high point of the Gospel of John. Because I think it's okay to compare this way. I think this statement that Thomas made, you know, the person we call Doubting Thomas, the statement he made is even greater than what Peter said. Some of you remember, we've studied it in our series in Mark. In Matthew 16, 16, it's worded this way. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Son of God. True statement. That's exactly right. In fact, Jesus commends him and says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. My Father has revealed this to you. But he called Jesus the Son of God. Thomas is saying, You are God. You are my Lord and my God. He's changed his mind. You know what we call that? Repentance. Turning around. Changing your mind about what you believed before. And that's what Thomas has done. Do you know the entire purpose of John writing his gospel appears here at the end of this section? His goal is that all of his readers would come to believe that Jesus is Lord and God the same way that Thomas did. Well, how do you know that? Well, you don't have to turn there, but the very first book, the very first verse of the book of John is John 1.1, and some of you may have memorized it. In the beginning was the Word. That's talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From the very first verse, John's purpose in writing his gospel has been to prove Jesus is God. And here he comes to the second to last chapter, and we have this amazing statement by doubting Thomas, saying, you are my Lord and my God. It's a big change, isn't it? From I will not believe unless I can touch him, unless I can feel the wounds, I will not believe. It's quite a change of heart. You are my Lord, you are my God. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, 
you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus knew that he would soon ascend to his father, go back to heaven. And he knew that many people would believe in him without seeing him with their physical eyes the way Thomas did. So here he offered a special blessing for them and for all of us who believe without seeing him with our physical eyes. If you still have your Bible open, we're going to read the last two verses of the chapter. There it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What was John's purpose in writing his gospel? What was his purpose in giving us this story about Thomas that we don't have in any of the other gospels? Thomas doesn't even speak in the other gospels, just in the book of John. That you and I would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing we would have eternal life in his name. So the question is very simple. Will you believe? These things are written that you may believe. Will you believe? Now, remember, if you're not believing this morning, that's okay. It it took these disciples time. But let's just all understand that if you are not believing in the risen Christ this morning, it's not that you can't. You're sitting here or you're watching online and you, you can hear my voice. You can comprehend what I'm saying. You can believe. God can give you, by his grace, faith to believe this so if you're not believing it's because you won't believe and you can choose to believe him today the good news is that god can give you faith to believe you can do that right now where you're sitting you can do that today now some of you have done that you believe that jesus is your lord and god does your life reflect that Would other people know that he's your Lord and your God? We all struggle at times with unbelief. We all struggle with doubts and fears. I understand. I do too. Are we going to bring those to him? Are we going to see what he has said to us, what promises he has given to us? Not long ago in our study in Mark, We read of that father of the child, and he came to Jesus, and he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. They can both exist at the same time. But if our belief is growing and our unbelief is shrinking, or our belief is shrinking and our unbelief is growing, they're not static. What did Jesus tell Thomas? Stop disbelieving. Start believing. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm about to finish this part of our service with a prayer. And as I do that, I'd like to give an opportunity, an invitation to anyone here. If you're not a believer... but you're thinking about that. 
you're burdened by that. You, you think you might want to be a believer. If that describes you this morning, this is what I'm going to ask of you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call your name. But if that describes you and you're thinking about this, would you look up at me? Would you make eye contact with me right now and let me know that? And I'm going to pray for you in my closing prayer in just a moment. Anyone? Is there a believer that you're struggling with some fear, some doubt, some unbelief that you know is in your life and you, you want to believe? We've said you can believe, but right now it's a struggle. But the Holy Spirit's speaking to you this morning. If you'd like me to pray for you, would you do the same thing? Would you just look up at me and look back down long enough for me to see and I'll remember you in prayer? Our Father, you know our hearts. You know our struggles. You know those who don't yet believe or who are struggling in their belief. Lord, you pour out your grace on us. You are so patient. You are so kind. I pray that you would increase our faith. That you would help us in our daily walk, that we would walk by faith and not by sight. That we would look forward to your return, that we would believe in you, that we would tell others about you and see others come to believe in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.